0: Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Acts chapter nine tonight and verses 10 to 18, please. Acts chapter 9, verses 10 to 18. We'll start reading in verse number 10. We'll go down to verse number 18, and uh, we'll get right into the message tonight. Acts 9, verse 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man. And entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. I'd imagine most of us know who Saul of Tarsus is in this passage. We know him later on in the book better as the Apostle Paul, but in the earlier parts of the book of Acts, he was the lead persecutor of the early church. Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, a very religious man, very devout to his religion, and felt as though this way that had been introduced by the disciples of Jesus Christ was very much a threat to his belief system. And so Saul of Tarsus began leading a campaign of persecution, and of imprisonment of those who followed the way of Jesus Christ. We see him presiding over the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter number 7. We see him in chapter number 8. The Bible says, wreaking havoc on the church, taking men and women to prison, no doubt responsible for more martyrs who are not recorded in the pages of Scripture. Having done his work in Jerusalem and the Bible telling us that many Christians were scattered out of Jerusalem because of his persecution, Saul sought authority from the local chief priests to take his work now to the city of Damascus. He had heard that there were Christians residing there and felt as though his next objective was to make them suffer for their faith. And so he made his way to Damascus. And along the way, of course, In Acts chapter 9, we read that famous story of his encounter with Jesus Christ. A bright light shines from heaven. He's knocked from his animal to the ground, and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? To which Saul replies, who art thou, Lord? And the voice says, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. And then he makes an interesting comment. He says, it is hard for thee to kick against the bricks. That word there comes from the idea of a goad that they would use in ancient times, the farmers would use to get a stubborn animal to move. They would put this goad on the front of the plow behind the animal, and as they were plowing the field, if the ox or the donkey became stubborn and didn't want to go any longer, the inertia of the plow would push it into that animal and that poke, that prick, would move the animal forward once again. However, there were times when the animal would get very stubborn about this and begin to kick against the prick. And it would not only not accomplish its purpose, but it would do incredible damage to the animal. Puncture wounds and uh, and muscular damage from that stubbornness. That's what Jesus said Saul of Tarsus was like. And it makes me believe that perhaps Saul was beginning to feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps he witnessed the stoning of Stephen and wondered why Stephen would say, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Perhaps as he took men and women into prison, he marveled at the fact that they did not curse and swear at him. They did not fight back, but rather they went with praying and with praising and with an attitude of rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. It baffled Paul, it baffled Saul of Tarsus how this could be. And no doubt he wondered what it was that these people had that he did not. And he was feeling that pricking conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says it was hard for him to kick against that. And so Saul finally begins to realize in this moment his wrong. And he asks Jesus, what wilt thou have me to do? And Jesus said, go on into the city and wait. Someone will come along shortly to tell you what to do. The narrative then switches to this character that we don't know a lot about, a man named Ananias. Ananias, a resident of the city of Damascus and a follower of Jesus Christ, is visited by the Lord in the night with this vision. And in this vision, he hears the Lord command him to go to a certain street and to a certain house where this man, Saul of Tarsus, was waiting for him. Ananias' initial reaction was one of hesitation and objection, as probably all of ours' reaction would have been. <laughs> I don't want to go there. I've heard of this man. I've heard of the evil that he has done. And then God reveals to Ananias what it was that was going on behind the scenes, and ultimately Ananias obeys what God has called him to do. I see a lot of myself in Ananias, and I believe if we were all honest, we'd have to say we all see ourselves in Ananias, in that there are times where God asks something of us that we do not want to obey. There's a reason why. There's a biblical mandate for the Christian life that we are called to walk by faith and not by sight. All of us struggle with that. Not a single one of us can say, everything I do, I do by faith. All of us would have to admit that what we can see and what we can understand impacts our decision making, at least on a semi-regular basis. It's a constant battle to make the decision to walk by faith and not by sight. And as we see Ananias and his story developing, we see three marks in the journey of a believer who is learning to walk by faith and not by sight. And I want to study these in brief tonight in hopes that it will help us the next time we find ourselves in a position like Ananias To, instead of raise an objection, obey in faith. I want you to see, first of all, in this passage, from verses 10, 11, and 12, the calling of Ananias. The calling of Ananias. Today, you and I hear from God through the completed word of God. The 66 books of the Bible, which contain the revelation of God to us. In Ananias' day, as this canon of scripture, this collection of scripture was not yet complete, there were times when God would speak to men and women through these visions and through these dreams and these special moments like Saul on the road to Damascus. But today, you and I, we hear from God through the coupling of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us paired with the power of God's word. One thing that remains constant, whether you're living in Ananias' day, hearing in visions and dreams, or you're living in this day, hearing through the word of God, one thing that remains constant is that God desires to speak to you. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight, God desires to speak to you. What is it that made Ananias capable of hearing from God? This is going to sound silly, but we notice, first of all, that he was listening. God says, Ananias, in verse number 10, and Ananias responds, Behold, I am here, Lord. You know, there's a big difference between listening to someone and hearing someone. When I was a kid, my dad would come in uh, to the living room every once in a while and give me a chore to do. Hey, Sam, I want you to take out the garbage or something similar. Now, I would be doing what all boys my age were doing, playing Mario Kart 64 on my Nintendo 64, right? Playing my video game, and he says, take out the garbage. And I say, yeah, okay, Dad, I got it. About 10 minutes later, he'd walk in. The garbage has still not been taken out. I'm still playing Mario Kart 64. And he says to me, I thought I told you to take out the garbage. To which I would respond, yeah, I heard you. And he would say, I know you heard me, but I'm afraid you were not listening to me. You didn't take what I was saying to heart. You weren't ready to act on what I have told you to do. Sometimes Christians say, I sure wish I could hear God speak to my heart. And my question would simply be, are you sure that you've been listening? Because in all likelihood, he's been trying to speak to you through his word, whether it be in the devotional time that you spend with him in the morning or through the preaching of God's word here in your local church or perhaps through some manner in which you take in his word and his spirit speaks to you. But we're never going to act on it if we're not actively listening. If we're not saying, like Ananias, behold, I am here, Lord. What do you need from me? He was listening. Because he was listening, we see that he was directed. God gives him instructions in verses 11 and 12, go to the street called straight, go to the house of Judas, find Saul of Tarsus and lay hands on him for his healing. He was directed. One of the truths about our walk with God is that he desires to direct us. He desires to show us the way we ought to go. Psalm 37 tells us the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. Now, there may be times in our lives where God has us in a period of waiting, where we're not sure what the next step is, and that's fine, and we're to wait on the Lord in those moments. But for the vast majority of our lives, God is ready and eager for us to know the way that we ought to go. He tells us much about his will for us in his word. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I don't think any of us would argue that it is God's will for us to be a witness, wherever we may be, whether it's on a foreign mission field or right here in Newport Beach. We know that God desires for us to be a cheerful giver. Second Corinthians chapter 9 tells us this. And on and on and on we go with the things that we know that God desires for us to do. Christian, I think I could say tonight without hesitation that God wants to speak to you And furthermore, in his speaking to you, he wants to direct you. He wants you to know the way that you ought to go. But it's at this juncture where things often go wrong. Perhaps we are listening for God's direction and we hear the way that he wants us to go. We sense his leading in a particular area of our lives. But we are a lot like Ananias in verse number 13. Notice with me the objection of Ananias he says Lord I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem and here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name in these verses we see his objection raised and it's raised on two points of reasoning two ways of looking at this issue first of all He objected on the basis of his knowledge of the situation, or we could say his understanding of the situation. Lord, I have heard by many of this man. It's almost as if he believes that God had not heard of this man. (laughs) And we kind of chuckle at that because we know that's silly. We know that God is omniscient. He knows all things. And yet... Ananias was under the impression that perhaps God had not heard what Saul of Tarsus was all about. You can even hear almost kind of a questioning in his voice. He's done evil to your saints at Jerusalem. He uses the basis of his own knowledge. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse number 5 tells us to trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not on thine own understanding. How silly is it for us as finite creatures to rely more on our understanding of a situation than to rely on God's? God maybe speaks to your heart and says, I want you to go and witness to your neighbor. Lord, I don't know if you know, but my neighbor doesn't really like religion and he doesn't really like me. So I don't know if that's a good idea. You just had your missions emphasis, and no doubt along the way there was discussion about what you would give to missions to get the gospel all around the world, and perhaps God spoke to your heart about a specific number, an amount, or some way to be involved, and you said, Lord, I don't know if you know what my bank account looks like right now. That's just a couple of examples. No doubt many of us have responded to the leading of God by saying, I know something, That I'm not sure God knows. And we're leaning on our own understanding. He also objected on the basis of his fear. Look at verse 14. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on thy name. You know, prior to this, it was all in Jerusalem. He heard of the happenings far away. But now it was becoming very real to Ananias. Now he's... Here. He's in Damascus. He's come to target people like me. There's no mistaking the fear in Ananias' words Saul of Tarsus has come to harm me. So, why would I put myself in a position where I would be close to him? I don't blame Ananias. I would have felt the same way. In fact, had I heard that Saul of Tarsus was coming to my city, I might be making plans to go to another city. I don't want to be in the way of this madman who's coming here to find people like myself and put me in prison, potentially kill me for my faith. And so when God said go, Ananias said, I'm afraid of that guy. He's come here to do me harm. Proverbs 29, verse 25, tells us that the fear of man bringeth a snare, a trap. It hinders us from living in obedience to God. The Bible is full of stories of men and women who did something that they should not have done or did not do something that they should have done because they were afraid. You can think of several examples, no doubt, off the top of your head. Abraham lied to Pharaoh about Sarah because he was scared. Then he passed that down to his son, Isaac. Isaac did the same thing with Abimelech about his wife, Rebekah, because he was scared. When Moses came down off the mountain with the law of God, And he heard the sound of singing and dancing before the golden calf. He went to Aaron for an explanation. And what did Aaron say? I was afraid of the people. Peter, the one who said, though all men should deny you, yet will not I deny thee. Three times denied Christ. Because he was afraid. God has given us perhaps this Uh, this impulse, this emotion, if you want to call it that, of fear for our own protection in one sense. If you were to see a snake slithering along on the sidewalk tonight, I would suggest that you don't pick it up. And my fear would keep me from doing that. There's some crazy people who have turned off that fear and decide to handle snakes anyway. They are crazy, okay? So don't be that type of person. So fear is okay in that regard, but listen, if God has laid it on your heart to do something according to his will, he's spoken to you through his word, his spirit has been leading you and pushing you a certain direction, and you feel fear, God did not give you that fear. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, God hath not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We could say that perhaps every objection we have to God's will for our lives is founded on one or both of those things our understanding and our fear. So let's not be too judgy of Ananias, because, like I said earlier, I see a lot of myself in Ananias. If you were to be honest, you probably see a lot of yourself. And Ananias as well. His objection was raised, but we see that very quickly his objection was rejected. Look at verse 15. The Lord said unto him, go thy way. By the way, I think that's exactly how God said it. Go thy way. Will you stop whining? (laughs) You're talking about what you know about Saul of Tarsus? Let me tell you what I know about Saul of Tarsus. He's a chosen vessel unto me. I'm going to use him to take the gospel to the Gentiles. I'm going to take, use him to take the gospel to the Jews. I'm going to take him, or use him to take the gospel to kings. Perhaps if Ananias had had a telescope, it could have looked off into the future and seen all of the things that God was going to do with Saul of Tarsus, he wouldn't have been so quick to object if he had seen that first missionary journey and the churches established in Pamphylia and in Perga and in Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, if he had seen that second journey and the famous Macedonian call that led Paul over into the city of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and down into Corinth and to Athens, perhaps if he had seen the great church that would be started in the city of Ephesus, if he had seen Paul during his imprisonment literally witnessing in the house of Caesar, perhaps he wouldn't have objected so quickly. But this is the point. God knew a lot of things that Ananias didn't know. Now, he gives Ananias the benefit of explaining those things in verses 15 and 16. But we don't always get that benefit. In fact, we almost never get that benefit. And I believe the reason why God gave it to Ananias and then recorded it on the pages of Scripture was just to remind you and I that no matter what's going on, God has a plan and a purpose. There's something happening that we simply cannot see. How could Ananias have known that Saul of Tarsus had met Jesus on the road to Damascus? He couldn't have. And that's why God's desire for Ananias... And his desire for you and I is to trust and obey. I trust that an omniscient God knows more than me. I trust that an omnipotent God can take care of my fears. And so we see his objection rejected. We've seen the calling of Ananias, the objection of Ananias. Thankfully, we come number three in verses 17 and 18 to the obedience of Ananias. Ananias went his way, entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me. That thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. This is the last time we hear the name Ananias, at least in regards to this particular Ananias. He fades from the pages of scripture just as quickly as he appears. There's nothing left that he did that we know of in God's revelation to us. But I can't help but thinking about future Ananias. 15, 20 years down the line from this story. Perhaps as he was the beneficiary of an epistle that Paul had written. Perhaps as he heard the reports of all that God had done in those missionary journeys of the churches that had been started. And of all that God had used Saul of Tarsus to do. Perhaps he sat back alone with his thoughts and said to himself. I'm really glad I did what God told me to do. Had Ananias not done what God had told him to do, God's plans would not have been derailed. He'd have found somebody else. And that's the truth of the matter. If God desires to do something through your life and you don't want to obey, he'll find somebody else. But how much better is it to be able to look back on a decision and say, I'm glad I did that. Instead of looking back on a crossroads in life and saying, I really wish I had done that. That's what obedience gives to us as believers. That's what walking by faith and not by sight gives to us. The ability to look back, not at what we have done, but what God has done in our lives. And to be able to say, I'm so glad I followed the leading of the Lord. I'm so glad that I made a decision to trust his guidance. Some of you may remember what happened a good while ago now, on the 16th of July, 1999. That was the fateful night when John F. Kennedy Jr., the son of former U.S. President John F. Kennedy, was killed in an an airplane crash, along with his wife, Carolyn, and his sister-in-law, Lauren. They were flying in a single-engine Piper Saratoga aircraft from Essex County, New Jersey, to Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. John F. Kennedy Jr. was the one flying the plane. He had received his pilot's license a year earlier in 1998. And prior to that flight, had logged approximately 310 hours of experience, 55 of which were during the hours of darkness. But John F. Kennedy Jr. was not certified to apply instruments only, meaning he always had to have a visible horizon in order to fly effectively. Instruments only flying means that you're not looking outside of the aircraft, you're focused only on your altimeter and other instruments there in the instrument panel to tell you what's going on with your aircraft. He was in the midst of an instrument rating course, but his instructor had noted that Kennedy might have trouble flying at night because he seemed to be constantly reliant upon having that visible horizon. Legally speaking, the conditions of that evening did not require him to be certified to fly instruments only. The aviation report for that evening was clear skies at or below 12,000 feet, visibility to 10 miles. So he and his wife and his sister-in-law boarded that plane and departed at 8.38 p.m. At about 9.41 p.m., Kennedy's plane crashed nearly nose first into the Atlantic Ocean just offshore of the Martha's Vineyard Airport. At 10.05 p.m., the air traffic controller at the Martha's Vineyard Airport contacted the FAA and notified them that Kennedy's plane had not yet arrived and that contact had been lost. A search and rescue effort was immediately launched, but it wasn't until five days later, on the afternoon of July 21st, that the wreckage of that plane was found along with the bodies of John F. Kennedy Jr., Carolyn Bessette, and Lauren Bessette. According to the Coast Guard, all three bodies were still within the aircraft, the two women strapped into their seats in the fuselage, JFK in his seat behind the controls in the cockpit. An autopsies later determined that all three had died on impact. An investigation was launched into what had taken place that evening. And investigators later determined that Kennedy had fallen the victim to what is known as spatial disorientation, an issue that is common amongst both divers and pilots. Spatial disorientation is the inability of a person to determine their position, location, or motion relative to their environment. It's literally the loss of the ability to know which way is up. If a diver goes deep beneath the water and loses his orientation and falls victim to spatial disorientation, he doesn't know where the surface is. He's not sure whether he should swim this way, this way, this way, or this way. When it comes to a pilot, spatial disorientation happens when they have no visible horizon for reference and lose the ability to know which direction they are going. In the case of John F. Kennedy Jr., as he flew out over open water that evening, and had no horizon for reference. He had no idea that his, the nose of his plane was beginning to angle down toward the water. He flew along for several minutes, losing altitude, and with his plane nose angle gradually becoming steeper and steeper, until at last his plane entered what is known as a graveyard spiral, where he could not pull up, and save himself. A few seconds later, they slammed into the Atlantic Ocean. In the end, Kennedy and the two women with him died because the pilot tried to fly by sight. Rather than using the instruments in the panel in front of him. And the disaster that hit Kennedy is similar to the disaster that will hit the believer who tries to live this life based on what they can see, rather than based on what God has already said. You see, the Bible says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's a dark world that we live in. There's a lot of things that can derail the Christian. A lot of things that can challenge your faith That can make you question what God is doing. A lot of things that can lead you down a path that you're not meant to go. But God has not left us without help. He has sent his spirit to dwell within us. And Jesus said to his disciples that that spirit would dwell within them to guide them into all truth. He has given his word to pair with the power of the Spirit so that we might know the way that we ought to go. And if a Christian is willing to focus on the instruments that God has given to him and is willing to walk by faith and not by sight, then that Christian can be confident in the way that he's going. When a Christian looks at the world around us and says, it doesn't make sense to witness because we live in a post-secular society. It doesn't make sense to give because inflation is high. It doesn't make sense to do this. It doesn't make sense to do that because there's something about our current situation, our current circumstance that makes that seem foolish then you can rest assured that's the Christian whose nose is beginning to angle down a little bit. Look at the instruments and pull up. Determine tonight that you're going to walk by faith and not by sight. And when you feel that angst starting to grip at your heart, you feel as though perhaps uh, you have a better understanding of a situation than God has. I'd encourage you to think back to Ananias. Who was asked by God to enter into a situation that made no sense to him. And I'd encourage you to think about what God said to Ananias there in verses 15 and 16 Go thy way. Because, and he doesn't say this in so many words, but he reveals it through his plan. I'm working in the background, I'm doing something that you cannot see, and I just need you